Let's go ahead and turn our Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This evening we'll be considering our Lord's first beatitude. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll go ahead and begin at verse 1 and read through to verse 3. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's once again pray and ask for God's help tonight. Our Father, as we come before you, we confess that we are in need, that we are poor. We pray that you would send your spirit to open your text to us. Father, open our hearts to receive it. Father, may you teach us our own need, but also show us your all-sufficiency in Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Whenever you read the histories of nations, whether they be ancient or modern, you often see how how the strong and the formidable made their mark, whether for good or ill, whether for the establishing and building up of a nation or for ultimately the tearing down of a nation. And right now, I'm reading the history of the Peloponnesian War, and no desire to time travel back to that. Um, But that went from 431 to 404 BC, and it was primarily fought between Sparta and Athens. But one of the things that has struck me reading it has been the pride that was on display with some of the leaders on both sides. Pride to such an extent that generals would lead their army into a battle that did not favor them, and that was not a good strategic position to be in, They would lead them into battle knowing that they were going to lose it, considering that it was better to die in a lost cause than to go back and having not fought. It it just is so foolish. You look back on it, and yet that is how the world operates. It's full of pride, full of glory for man. And yet when we come to Matthew 5 and our Lord is beginning his Sermon on the Mount, we are struck by the direct opposite of the kingdom of Christ as opposed to the kingdoms of this world. In the Beatitudes, we find in verses 3 through 10 that Jesus lays out what are the marks or the character of those who belong to his kingdom. And as you read through them, it strikes us how contrary to nature they are. The natural man recoils at them, but we are reminded in considering them that they are not something that comes natural to us, but is the fruit and evidence of the Spirit of God upon our lives. And if you recall, last time we looked at this passage uh, several weeks ago, so I sought to bring out was the fact that Jesus is not telling us here what we are to be in terms of you need to strive for this. Rather, this is what happens to those who are born into the kingdom. These are the marks of those who belong to me. So I want us this evening to begin to look at that first beatitude that Jesus gives us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want us to consider two main points from it. First, we want to see what the poor in spirit are, or see the poor in spirit defined. What does it look like? And then we want to consider the rich possession enjoyed by all those who are poor in spirit. So as we come to the text, one of the most basic questions that we are faced with is the question of who is Jesus referring to? What does Jesus mean by the poor? Now, there is a parallel account here, and that's found in Luke 6. And some consider that to be Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Others consider it another sermon of our Lord, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Whether they're the same or separate doesn't really concern us. But the fact is there are clear parallels there. 
and we shouldn't think that when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount here that this was the only time that he said these things. In his three years of ministry, no doubt he returned to them over and over again. But in Luke's version, in Luke 6, and verse 20, we read, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And there Luke simply records the poor. So should we understand it those poor spiritually or just anyone who might be considered poor? Now there is a sense when we look through the Bible that we can see that God does take note of the poor and the downtrodden. Several places within the Mosaic Law, even what we heard tonight from Deuteronomy 24, talks about how the poor are to be treated and cared for. And also there's several other texts that we could turn to. Consider Psalm 140, verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. And then even Paul, in his apostolic journey, was mindful of the poor. As we read in Galatians 2.10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. And then we could also consider the book of James as well. James mentions the poor several times and the rich who oppresses them. But all those texts point us to the fact that God does take note of the poor and the needy in this world. However, nowhere in the Bible is there any hint or connection that a person who is materially or in earthly terms poor somehow has, we might say, a spiritual leg up or some spiritual blessings on the basis of that poverty. So while we can see that God takes, does take special note of the poor and the oppressed, it's not an automatic ticket for spiritual blessing. They too must have the work of the Spirit in their heart. And so in our verse tonight, the qualifier that Jesus gives us is that it's the poor in spirit. That in spirit part is the qualifier for us. That how, that's how we know who it is that he's speaking with concerning the poor. So it's irrespective of what one's outward circumstances are in life. One could be quite wealthy in terms of this world's standards and yet be poor in spirit. Or one could also be poor by earthly standards as well and be poor in spirit. Doesn't matter. It's what is the state of the heart? So to be poor in spirit is referring to an inward disposition, a state of the heart, regardless of what those outward circumstances are. Now, when Jesus uses this phrase here, this poor in spirit, he is picking up on something in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. The speaker is often referred to as one who is poor. For example, Psalm 40:17, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 86.1, bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. And then Psalm 109.22, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. So viewing oneself as poor and needy would not have been a completely new concept for Jesus' hearers. But it does go against our natural thinking. We don't like to be in the position of being poor or needy. It makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us feel like something is wrong. We should be strong and sufficient, not relying on others. And the word used here for poor speaks of one who is destitute, completely without and reliant on others. And yet Jesus says it is those that are poor in spirit in that way who are actually blessed. But let's focus a little bit even more on what does it look like to be poor in spirit before God? How does it manifest itself? What are its marks? Well, the first, is that to be poor in spirit before the Lord is to realize that in and of ourselves we are nothing before God. Not only is it a sense of our own poverty before God, 
but it is a realization that we also bring a debt that we cannot pay back. It's one thing if a person is poor and has no money, but it's another thing if that person is poor, has no money, and finds himself indebted to others. And that is the case for each one of us, regardless if you're a Christian or not. All of us stand in debt to God because of our sins against him. And that is true of every person born in this world. To be poor in spirit is to realize we have no claim upon God. We cannot demand anything of him, and we are in no position to do so. We deserve his justice and his wrath upon us because of our sins. And we owe a debt to him that only increases and can never be repaid. We find ourselves spiritually undone and sunken in a pit with no way out. And to be poor in spirit is to realize we bring nothing to the bargaining table. We have no excuse. We have no plea that we can offer. We can only confess in the words of the hymn, I am all unrighteousness, false and full of sin I am. We are only rich in our own sins, the very thing that condemns us before God. But consider, even if we are saved, we are still poor. And we might think about that and think, well, that's where, that's where I was unconverted, but I'm converted now. Things are different. We're still poor. It's true that we do have the Spirit of God. It's true that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, but the very root of any desire for righteousness or pursuing righteousness springs from the work of God in us. There's nothing that we can look at in ourselves and say, oh, I can contribute this, I can bring this. No, it all comes back to God's work in us. There's nothing in the Christian life that we can claim as our own. It all comes back to the source of God himself. And consider, there is nothing we have now. Think about that for a moment. In your Christian life, however long that's been, the gifts God has given you, the graces God has bestowed upon you, the, the work of Christ within you, there's nothing we have received, or there's nothing that we have now that we did not receive. It all comes from his grace. So those who are poor in spirit realize their own spiritual poverty. But those who are poor in spirit realize something else. They not only see their own emptiness, but they also behold in God all fullness. They see the Lord as the one who is supreme in his fullness and has no need of anything. He is all-sufficient in himself. He's the only one of whom it can be said that he is blessed in and of himself, not relying on anyone or anything to be considered blessed. And when speaking to his people in the Old Testament, the Lord says to them in Psalm 50, verses 7 through 12, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. And there he's telling his people, you can bring the sacrifices, but not because I have need of them. I have everything. I own everything. I am not in dependence on you. And Paul states the same thing when preaching in Athens, when he says in Acts 17, 24 through 25, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. But it's not simply the fact that God is sufficient in and of himself, and that he is not in need like we are as humans. There's also the realization that with this fullness and all-sufficiency, that God is rich in mercy and grace. Consider Ephesians 2, 4, but God who is rich in mercy. 
This, he's rich, he's wealthy, he abounds in mercy. Or Ephesians 1, 7 and 2, 7, that speak of the riches of his grace. And Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy or overflowing in mercy. It pours out of him. There is so much of it. If this was not true of God, if God was not rich in mercy, if God was not rich in grace and all sufficient in and of himself, we would rightly despair because where would we go to? If there was a limit or a cap on the mercy and grace of God, our fear would be that it would be reached or run out. But the wonder of it is that it cannot be fathomed. It cannot be emptied and it will not run out because if God ceases to be rich in mercy and grace, he ceases to be God and that cannot be. And those who are poor in spirit have come to see and understand this and believe it. They confess that they are nothing, but in God there is everything. And what we lack and where we lack, there is supply to be had in God. There is a fullness in him that those who are without stand in need of. But it's at this point that those who are poor in spirit show themselves. Because it's one thing to believe these things. You can be an unbeliever here and confess, well, that's true. I can point to the Bible verses, okay, I, I will give you that argument that I'm in need and that there is sufficiency of God. I can grant you that. The difference with the poor in spirit is that they are willing to beg and seek for God for their need. That is the difference. It's not simply they believe these things as they act upon it. And that's even something of the idea of the word used here for poor. It carries with it the idea of to beg. It's not just the idea of someone who's in need and realizes that need, but they act upon it. They will beg because of that need. They give voice to it. Now, we can do this with just personal or material needs. And maybe you found yourself in an instance where you've had some need or you've had some assistance that you could use, but how often... If you find yourself in that spot, have you thought your way out of asking anyone? Because you, you know there's a need, but you don't want to admit it. You don't want to bring yourself to ask somebody. You just couldn't bring yourself to ask. Or maybe you think about someone who you might see on the road or along the street who's holding up a sign asking for help. And for those who are really in need doing that, you have to ask yourself, at what point was it that they were willing to go that far to begin to beg? Because it, it, it's against pride. We don't want to beg. We don't want to be in need. But what brings us to that point? What brings us to the point that we're actually willing to beg and to admit our need and to seek assistance outside of ourselves? We have to be humble and desperate enough to seek that assistance from others. And each of us knows there are times that we would rather live with a need than to humble ourselves and ask for help. Our pride at times can let us go that far. But that's the difference between those who know what the Bible says about themselves and God, about themselves and God and those who are poor in spirit. The poor in spirit have been humbled enough that they are willing to beg for God for the need that they have. Now, if we were to divide ourselves here between those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ, you might be outside of Christ and know these things, but the, the difference is you have not humbled yourself yet to come to Christ. You have not humbled yourself that you're willing to beg for mercy. But those who are poor in spirit and who beg, they beg in hope. And that's the beauty of this. It's one thing to reach out to someone, hoping that they will answer or help. 
Again, you think about the person on the street that's holding the sign up for money. They might hope that someone might give them something, but they have no expectation that everybody driving by or everybody walking by is going to give them money. That, that would be a fool's hope. Maybe a handful might give them something. But when one who is poor in spirit cries out and begs to God for their need, there is the confidence and the anticipation that he will hear and answer. Because all that we looked at previously regarding the riches of God's fullness shine brightly in his willingness to give and to bestow. Later on in this same sermon, Jesus is going to speak of the willingness of God, our Father, to give good gifts. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. We'll read there, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And here the contrast Jesus makes is between ourselves as evil and our perfect Father who is in heaven. And if we, being evil, have the desire and purpose to give good gifts to our children, then how much more of God? And it's not that he knows what good gifts to give, but it's also speaking of his disposition. If we who are parents love our children, there is the desire that we have to bestow upon them good things, things to meet their needs and just things for their enjoyment as well. And Jesus says this is what the Father is like with his children. Those poor in spirit who cry to him can expect good gifts from their Father in heaven. Notice what James says in James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. Now here in the context, James is speaking particularly about wisdom. But James says that God gives liberally. That is, he gives as one with no strings attached. He gives without second thought. He gives without expecting it to be paid back. It's the picture of someone who's able to give out of their abundance and not even think about it. Some of us might think it might be nice to be able to have that type of resource that we can just give and not even give a second thought to it. Well, that's what James is saying God is like. He can give. doesn't hurt him. It's, it's not even a thought to him because of his fullness that he gives. And that is the kind of God that we have. And that is the kind of hope and the expectation that the poor in spirit have when they come and beg of God. You think of Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. They call upon a need. God is abundant in mercy to answer that. It's a begging and the confidence that God loves to answer beggars. And he answers that not by simply giving us something to hold us over. You might give a gift to someone and it's to meet a specific need that they have. But after, the, after it's used, the gift's gone. It's not recurring. It doesn't come back. And that person that you gave it to has no further claim on you. You're not, you're not obligated to help them anymore. But not so with God. It's not simply him meeting our needs. Rather, he gives himself to us. And that's the beauty of it. We are brought into union with Christ. And it's through that union that we who are poor can have our needs met and satisfied, not just for the moment or not just for a little bit, but for a lifetime and for eternity. We are joined to the one in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And after Paul says that, Paul says in Colossians 2.10, you are complete in him. Is you lack nothing in him. And it's because Christ was made poor that we can be made rich in him. 
This means that those who are poor in spirit never have to suffer lack. Not that they won't feel lack or continue crying out, but they do not have to go without. But it does mean that our only fulfillment comes to us through our union with Christ. We're never in a position that we are on our own. We never stop being beggars. We are always in need and indebted to God for his ongoing grace to uphold us. Brethren, we think about this. This should humble us throughout our Christian life. We enter the Christian life in humility, recognizing our own sinfulness and poverty and looking to have that met by God. But after that, we should live a life of humility before God. That's what we're called to because we never graduate from this. We never reach a point when we are not in need or not in full dependence on him to sustain us. And if we could ever be at a point that we are self-sustaining and not poor, then we are saying that we no longer need grace. God's grace meets us in our need, in our poverty, and if we want to continue knowing that grace, then we stay humble and poor because it is the proud who are resisted, but God gives grace to the humble. You remember the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3 and what Jesus says to them in verses 17 through 18. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Well, what was their problem? They thought they were fine. Ask them if they were poor, and they would say, no, look at, look at all that we have. Look at all that we enjoy. But Jesus paints a different picture of what's going on. For all that they may have and all that they were, had enjoyed, they were ultimately with nothing. And it was because they had taken their eyes off of Jesus and had grown accustomed not to be beggars before him. And Jesus basically tells them that if they don't come to him, they don't humble themselves and seek from him, they will end up with nothing. And that is an ever-present temptation we, we face. We have a natural bent to be proud and self-sufficient. Not only in material things, but even spiritually, we have that bent. But if we go in that way, it's to stop being poor in spirit and stop begging before God. And sadly, we have to confess that sometimes we'd rather feel the lie of self-sufficiency than to feel the pinch of dependence. But it's only when we most fear our need that we are really at our riches. Because it's when we know our need and our own sense of poverty, it drives us to our knees in soul dependence upon God. And that is when we can know the most fullness. And this is where our thinking can be confused. Being satisfied with God's fullness doesn't result in us begging less. It should cause us to recognize how much we need every day and every moment of the day and how much fullness there is for us each and every day in God. Now, there's a place that we can consider that this will evidence itself as well in our relationship to one another, and we don't have time for that tonight. But think about this. If this is what poor in spirit means, seeing my own need as nothing before God and seeing in God all the fullness that I need and that I want is found in him, how should that play itself out in our interactions with one another? It's out of sync for us to consider ourselves humble before God, or to speak of being humble before God, and yet we're proud with one another. Again, we can't expand on that, but I'll leave that to your own thinking and meditation on how does, how does me being poor before God work itself out with one another? And we'll return to that, Lord willing, in further studies. But if God has dealt or is dealing with you to make you see in greater measure your own poverty before 
before him, then it will show itself in before others as well. But if we are poor in spirit, we will see the truth of Luther's dying words when he said, we are beggars, this is true. Indeed, we are beggars, and all we can be is beggars. But praise God that he blesses beggars, and he calls them to himself and meets their need. And this is an attitude and disposition of being poor in spirit that should be cultivated in us. And it's not simply something we feel one time. It's not simply when we first come to Christ, we're poor in spirit. Rather, this should be our lifelong pattern. We should grow in it and embrace it daily. And let me encourage us in just two simple ways for us to do that. Daily, we should look often at our own heart and our own sin. Just think about, take a normal day that you have. And at the end of the day, if you were to look back and think about how you acted throughout that day, what went on in your heart through that day, if you were to honestly look at yourself before the truth of Scripture and your own experience, how could you not see your own poverty of spirit? Either sins that were committed or places where you felt the pull of temptation and you were beginning to consider it? Or how quickly do you find yourself being impatient, whether it's driving or with dealing with someone, or just you find yourself dull spiritually? We live with daily reminders of our own poverty of spirit, and we need to own that and not disregard that and think we're sufficient in and of ourselves, because we're not. So think daily of our own heart and our own sin. But secondly, along with looking at your own heart, daily look to the cross. Because if anything, the cross reminds us you have nothing to give. The whole purpose of the cross is the fact that you can't contribute anything. If you did, the cross is not needed. The whole purpose of the cross is to remind you that you are poor, but here God has met our need in Christ. And, that, and so we should continually keep the cross before our eyes because it's a reminder to us that we need someone to save us. We need someone to rescue us. We need someone to keep and preserve us daily. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot muster what was needed. We are simply poor, needy sinners each and every day. But the cross daily reminds us that what, God, that what we need, God supplies. So let's... May God help us to cultivate this daily, to think of these two things, our own heart, but also the cross, and keep our eyes focused on Christ. But notice, secondly, having seen who the poor in spirit are, consider the rich possession of the poor in spirit. Jesus now expands upon the blessing bestowed on those who are poor in spirit, because he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a sweet irony in the Beatitudes. If you notice that as Jesus gives them, most often what is singled out as a blessing has its fulfillment in something that corresponds to it. So those who are hunger and thirst, they will be filled. Those who mourn will be comforted. And here, the poor. Well, what do the poor have? The poor have a kingdom. That's, that's, that doesn't happen in our world. Poor, the poor do not get a kingdom. But here it does. Those who have nothing and those who are beggars, those who are dependent on God for everything, they are the ones who have a kingdom. And Jesus' answer is yes, they are the ones who come and possess a kingdom. Now we might ask, what does it mean that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Now Matthew has already used this phrase. He first uses it in Matthew 3, verses 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, remember, John is preparing the way for Christ. And then we read in Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there the idea is that it has drawn near because Christ was now present and preaching the kingdom. And now in the Beatitudes, Jesus uses it for what those who are poor in spirit partake of. And he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the idea is that they have the full riches and enjoyment of the kingdom. It is theirs to live in. It is theirs to partake of. It is theirs to come under its banner. But what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the simplest definition that's often given is that the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God over his people. Now, we have to be careful not to misunderstand this and what we are saying with that. That's not denying that in re- that's not denying the reality that God does rule and reign over the whole world right now. Every part of this world is under the reign of God. Everything that happens, happens because of his will, because of his sovereignty over it. He is the sovereign ruler over all. But within what we might call that general rule and reign of God, there is that special and particular rule and reign of God over his people. And those are the ones who are in his kingdom. It's the people who he has called and calls to be born again into this kingdom that know the special reign of God. And here we have Jesus, the king of that kingdom, blessing, pronouncing blessing on those who are in it. You'll notice that this blessing, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is one that is repeated. The Beatitudes open and close in verse 10 with the declaration that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the other thing to notice is that this blessing of the kingdom of heaven is the only one at the present tense. All the others are spoken of in the, in the future, but this one is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that helps us to see that there is a now of these blessings as well as a future consummation of them. We get a taste of these spiritual blessings in this life, but await the perfect manifestation of them. Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way. He says, quote, Jesus himself makes this plain by beginning and ending the Beatitudes with the same promised blessing. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verses 3 and 10. In verses 4 through 9, this chief blessing is further explained and illustrated in a series of six specific blessings. Comfort, verse 4. Inheriting the earth, verse 5. Being filled, verse 6. Receiving mercy, verse 7. Seeing God, verse 8. And being called sons of God, verse 9. In its simplest terms, Jesus' teaching means this. His disciples have already, here and now, entered into the kingdom. Yes, it is still to be consummated. Yes, it is still to be revealed in its final glory. Yes, we still wait for the day with loud, with loud voices will say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, Revelation eleven fifteen. Nevertheless, all the blessings that are expected in that kingdom in the future are already being experienced by Christ's people now. End quote. We can say that Christ has brought final blessings to begin to be enjoyed now and known now. And what we have in the Beatitudes is a look at what it's like to be in the kingdom and the blessings that flow from it. But in relation to those who are poor in spirit, I think we can focus even more. And part of this is meant to see a contrast between how Christ's kingdom is and how the kingdoms of this world are. And think of it in particularly in relation to the poor. The poor in this world and the poor in the spirit of the kingdom. What's the treatment of the poor in the kingdom of this world? Well, there might be some notice taken of them, but for the most part, and throughout history, they are largely forgotten. There's no books written on them. There's no memorials to them. They're a forgotten group of people. In some places, they're considered more of a blight than a part of the nation, but not so with the kingdom of heaven. Here, they are a valuable part of the kingdom. 
Indeed, it's those who are poor that make up the kingdom. In the kingdoms of this world, the poor are often mistreated and taken advantage of. They're often considered defenseless, but not so with the king. He himself is their defender and will allow none to take advantage of them. The poor in this world can leave this world with no one to consider or even notice. You think of the many homeless that are on the streets. How few note their passing. But in the kingdom of heaven, each individual member is noted. And it can be said of all those who are poor in spirit, the words of Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The poor in the world's kingdom rarely rise anywhere. Again, there are exceptions throughout history, but overall it is very rare. But with the poor of the kingdom of heaven, they are united to the king himself. Indeed, he is their elder brother. They will reign with him, and it can be said of them in Revelation 5.10, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The poor in the kingdoms of this world are often a cause of shame. We want them hidden, not seen. We are embarrassed to encounter them. But the poor of this kingdom, the king loves them, and he owns each one of them. He is not ashamed, he's not ashamed of them. In fact, he's not even ashamed to call them brethren, and God himself is not ashamed to be called their God. In the kingdoms of this world, the poor are those who have to do without. They don't get to enjoy some of the even basic necessities others might have. They go without and lack, but not so those in this kingdom. The poor have been given all things richly to enjoy. Indeed, they are blessed, and they who are poor have been made rich through Christ. And you think about in the kingdoms of this world, no one in authority consults the poor over any decisions to be made. Now, we live in a land that we have some say in terms of the laws that are passed in that, but even then, nothing, no decision is made, no law is passed that satisfies everyone. Some, someone, it, it, it's disadvantaged to someone, someone doesn't like it, whatever the case might be. Even in the best of situations, that happens in the kingdoms of this world. But the poor typically are never consulted on that. But think about this king. Our king's not like that. Everything that our king decides and purposes is for the good of all. And I was thinking about this. We think of a nation. A nation might make a decision that's, that's good for all, even though all might not like it. But with our God, he makes every decision he makes is good. And we can look around each one of us in our lives and how our lives as a congregation can intersect. And maybe we have the same event and the same event impacts us differently. And yet, both that same event is for our each individual good. No government, no king could ever make that, make that happen, but our God can. And it's, and it's mind boggling to think of, not just good for all of us, but each individual member of the kingdom, everything that happens is for their good and turns out for their good. No one is left out. No one has to watch a brother or sister receive a good outcome and be left in the dark. Rather, everything that the king brings into their life is for their good as well. In short, the enjoyment of the kingdom now is the reality that we are kept by God and in his safekeeping. That's our present position. That's what we have now because we have the kingdom. It's a kingdom made up of nobodies, spiritually speaking. They are the ones who are included. Those are the ones who are called into the kingdom. And there's a part of, it, part of us that want to look at something that we've done. We want something that we can hold up and say, here's the reason I'm here. Yet the very requirements of entering this kingdom won't allow that. 
because it's only the poor, those who have nothing. If we could find something to hold up or to wave as our reason for being in this kingdom, then we forfeited grace. We're not in by grace. We're in because of something we've done. And there is no one who can claim to be in the kingdom because of something they did. The only one who can claim entrance into the kingdom is the very king of the kingdom who fulfilled all righteousness so that we who are poor would have something to enable us to enter into his presence. It's an ever-present reminder that this is all of grace. That's grace that we need, grace that we beg for, grace that brings us into the present enjoyment of this kingdom. And you may sit here tonight and ask, why me? Why was I made to come into this kingdom? Why was I made to enjoy these things? And to that question, I would answer with Luke 12, 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's the root of it. It is the father's good pleasure, not for anything you've done, not for anything you can do, not for anything you might do, but it's the father's good pleasure. And we should marvel at the love and the grace and the mercy of God his good pleasure gave us an eternal hope. Brethren, consider we're united to a king whose throne is forever and whose reign will know no end. We're part of that kingdom now that will never end. We await the full glory of it, but we take comfort and hope. Once placed in this kingdom, you can never be removed. You're never going to be extradited back to Satan's kingdom. We might have the fear that if our being in the kingdom was something that depended on us, or something in us that commended us, we might have that fear. But all that we have that commends us was given to us by the king himself, and he will not revoke it. Christ has claimed you as his own. You are his. For any of the citizens of this kingdom to perish, the kingdom has to end. Christ will have to cease to exist, and we know that can never be. And what confidence and joy we can know now because of the kingdom we belong to. Whatever is happening in this world, Whatever's happening now, whatever will happen, Christ's kingdom is safe, and it will continue to grow and continue to exist till he, till he returns and gathers us to himself. The kingdoms of this world will come to an end someday. Some may be sooner, some may be later. Our own nation may continue to see some dark days ahead. But because of this, because we belong to his kingdom, we have reason to hope. We can live in joy because the kingdom of heaven has no end. And we only see its glory in a small way now, but we await the full glory of it. We can live with a sense of peace now, knowing that whatever happens in the kingdoms of this world, that all those in the kingdom of heaven are safe. We can also live with a sense of boldness, because we don't have to be ashamed of belonging to this kingdom. Rather, while the nation of this world will weaken and decay over time, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And we can live in hope that others, too, will be brought into this kingdom. We're not the only ones. If we were the only ones, this was it, Christ would return. There are others out there still awaiting entrance into this kingdom. So we can live in hope that others will be brought in as well. You are called to this kingdom, and there was mercy bestowed on you. And we know that there are others that will be called into this kingdom as well, others that have nothing to offer, but God is willing to show mercy too. And brethren, May God help us live in light of these realities that we now enjoy the kingdom of heaven. Brethren, we are members of the kingdom of heaven. Let's live like it in our daily lives. May God help us live like it in our daily lives. But there are some of you who sit here tonight that are outside that kingdom. And some of you know all this. Some of you have been here long enough that we could turn to the same Bible passages that we looked at to show the emptiness of man before God and the futility of our works to gain heaven, and you know that. And as I said, you can turn to Bible passages 
that speak of that, but you do nothing. And that is the key difference between you and those who are poor in spirit. You haven't gotten to the point yet where you are willing to beg. You're too proud. You think too much of yourself and too little of your actual need. You're willing to just, as it were, cross your arms and do nothing about it. But such pride has sent many to everlasting judgment. But notice how sweet the tidings tonight, because it is those who are poor that are welcomed. You're already in that state. You, there's nothing you need to do to change. You're in that state. You are poor, and that's who you are tonight. And so I ask you, will you humble yourself and seek the mercy you need from the Lord Jesus? And perhaps there's still in that mind that you think, oh, I don't have anything to offer. Or I've done so many sinful things, and even now I find there are sins I delight in. Don't I need some time to get my act together, to be accepted, or to make me better? And the answer is no, that's the whole point. Because if it was, you're, you're outside of grace. Jesus doesn't come to you in the gospel and ask, what do you have to trade with me? Let's, let's barter. Or what do you have that you need me to make up the lack of? He doesn't ask you to come with money to buy from him. Rather, he says, come as you are in all your need, in all your poverty, and I will give you myself. I am full of grace and mercy. I have a perfect righteousness that I can bestow on you. I will bring you into my kingdom, and I will bring you into union with myself and never let you go. Don't delay any longer. You're bidden to come to Jesus. All who are poor and needy, that's where you're at right now. There's no reason to delay. Come to him and find in him your all in all. And let me close with this quote that I saw this week from Bunyan. And with this, we'll, we'll end. He says here, to see a prince and treat a beggar, to receive an alms would be a strange sight. To see a king and treat a traitor to accept of mercy would be a stranger sight than that. But to see God and treat a sinner, to hear Christ say, I stand at the door and knock with a heart full and a heaven full of grace to bestow upon him that opens, this is such a sight that dazzles the eyes of angels. May you find that mercy in Christ tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these reminders. We thank you that you take those of us, which are all of us, that are poor and needy, and you don't ask us to clean ourselves up. You don't ask us to uh, find resources within ourselves, but you simply bid us to come, and you supply all that we have need of. Father, we thank you for our sufficient Savior, our all-powerful Savior, the saved sinners. Father, we pray you would help us as your people to live as those who are poor and yet as those who rejoice in the fact that ours is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we pray for some here tonight that stand right now poor and needy. Father, make them feel their own poverty. Father, give them no rest till they come to you begging for mercy and crying out that you would have mercy on them in Jesus. And may they find it, as so many of us have here tonight. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.